Welcome to the AGA Podcast, where we bring you small talk on big topics from within the world of gastroenterology. Thanks for being with us. Now let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to AGA Podcast, small talk, big topics. I'm your host, Matthew Whitson. Today, I am here with Dr. CSC. Hello, CS. How are you? Hey, Matt. I'm good. All right. You excited for this? Because I feel like I'm going to get some questions answered that I've always had. Yeah, exactly. And we know guidelines well, but what about clinical practice updates? Like we're seeing a lot of these now. Like what's the difference between them? And should we use it the same? Are they different? So this is really neat that we get to talk to the chairs of the AGA Clinical Practice Guidelines Updates Committee, as well as the Guidelines Committee Chair. You know, I'm excited that Dr. Sultan and Dr. Lim have decided to join us. I don't know how you feel in training, but you know, I've always found myself reading guidelines and and CPUs and and trying to figure out how to addend or modify or update my practice. And during training, I always kind of looked at guidelines as kind of the holy grail to some extent of what I should be doing and who I should be aiming to be. So learning about how they're developed, because I always feel like that's been a mystery, is something I'm really excited about learn about. Yeah. And I think on the other hand, like who should apply it? How should we should apply? Are these a gold standard standard of care or are these really just advice, like good to know kind of things? So I think getting their opinion of how we use it or how other societies should use it or should patients even look at this and kind of bring it up to us in clinic, like, hey, you should be doing this scope on me. Now, how should we use these? If a patient came up to me with a guideline says, <laughs> uh, excuse me, on page 73 of your guideline, there is... <laughs> There is high quality evidence and a strong recommendation that you should be doing this for me. I, I'm pretty sure I'd be impressed with the patient. I think that's a unique person, but they might be out there. <laughs> Listen, you don't, you don't know this, yes, but I have a unique panel. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe <laughs> others do as well. So I'm think- sure we all think our panels are unique, though. <laughs> so yeah, so Dr. Sultan, Dr. Lim, I think the other question I want answered, besides for how it should be applied... I want to know, this has been one of the things I've always wanted to know. I want to know what the heck do you do when there's a strong recommendation, but low quality evidence. So I am going to see if I can get the two of them to answer that question for me. That, that, is, that is my subtle agenda of this conversation. And I think you also had another cool question, whether there are anything that didn't really make it to the guidelines or were suggested and why they were turned down or the CPU, kind of quote unquote, the rejects. Do you have a do you have a topic, CS, that you want to see a guideline on, whether it be for comedic purposes or for for real purposes? Yeah, I think I would love to see maybe guidelines so much for healthcare utilization, because that's always been a big topic, like cost or skyrocketing in all kinds of fields, uh, IBD and liver, probably in esophagology too. And just people go to ED or are hospitalized, do they really need to be? And how can we be more lean in medical practice? So maybe healthcare utilization is one that if we have a guideline for it, that might be good for practitioners. See, you are you're a big thinker. I'm just harping on I want to see the clinical practice guideline or, or the clinical guideline on fecal occult testing and why it is the bane of all inpatient consults. <laughs> but I think that's probably so, more realistic. <laughs> it is more I, it, maybe it is more realistic, but it also may be a little bit more small thought 
than the big picture that you're bringing up. So I'm not sure we'll get those answers out of them, but uh, you know, this conversation I'm looking forward to. All right, let's get started. Let's bring them on. Dr. Sultan, why don't we start with you? Do you mind introducing yourself and telling the audience a little bit about who you are, what you do, and how you ended up here? Yes. First of all, I just want to say thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure to be here. My name is uh, Shana Sultan. I'm a general gastroenterologist at the University of Minnesota and the Minneapolis VA. I'm also the program director of our GI fellowship training program that includes 13 trainees overall. And I'm also here in in my capacity as the chair of the AGA Clinical Guidelines Committee. Nice. So multiple titles right off the bat. Fantastic. Too many hats. Too many hats. And Dr. Lim, do you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. So I'm uh, Joe Lim. I'm a gastroenterologist at uh, Yale School of Medicine. And I've had a pleasure of directing our viral hepatitis program for many years and more recently taking on a role as director of clinical hepatology. I currently serve as chair of the Clinical Practice Updates Committee and have had the honor and privilege of working with my colleague, Dr. Sultan, in a collaborative role um, in trying to develop clinical guidance with the AGA organization. And so I think that this will give us a great opportunity to kind of chat about, you know, the differences between things that we do and how we work together. So maybe jumping off of that, what is a guideline and what is a clinical practice update? How are they different? It kind of sounds similar, but obviously they're not. Uh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So they, I think, are serving a very similar goal, which is to help clinicians in making decisions for their patients. But how we develop these documents is actually quite different. The process that our committee uses is actually a pretty systematic and stepwise process for how we develop our technical review and our guideline. And these are really two accompanying pieces. The evidence that supports the recommendations is published in our technical review. And then the guideline really provides basically point of care information that clinicians can use with regards to diagnosis or treatment decisions when they're seeing patients. And we really follow the standards that have been developed by the Institute of Medicine, now formerly known as the National Academy of Medicine, and by endorsed by organizations such as Guidelines International Network that really highlights a couple of main principles in the formation of guidelines, which is that they really ought to be based on a systematic review of the body of evidence And there ought to be a framework that looks at the overall confidence or certainty of the evidence for the knowledge that informs the recommendations. And there is a framework for rating the strength of the recommendations. And so we rely a lot on the grade approach or the grade framework for guideline development. And I'll stop there because, you know, I could spend a lot of time going into detail about how we develop our technical reviews and our guidelines. But I'll let Joe kind of talk to us a little bit about the CPU process. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I think that uh, as a graduate of the Guidelines Committee, I have a great appreciation for the important methodology that is used to generate guidance for the AGA. And it's important to note that the content that is required and evidence base that's required to develop guidelines requires a pretty high bar. And so it's in that spirit that the AGA Governing Board back in 2016 decided that it would be important to develop a secondary mechanism to develop rapid guidance for clinicians on topics that may not meet that bar uh, for which evidence is available. And so these are in areas where uh, there are 
basic clinical questions, our niche topics within broader areas such as IBD, liver disease, pancreatitis, etc., and where there's an understanding that there is a need for guidance that would not take past two years and that has that uh, great methodology incorporated uh, to provide expert reviews or commentaries that provide more timely guidance on those areas. And so I'll give you examples of um, when Duodenoscopes came out with their concern for CRE, there's a need for timely guidance on how we should manage that as clinicians. In the topic of immune checkpoint inhibitors, we have a recent CPU in which we tried to address what is the role of gastroenterologists in the evaluation and management of colitis and hepatitis that may be attributable to immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, These are all areas where evidence base um, is admittedly relatively small or limited. And so the CPU provides us the opportunity to provide uh, a little bit quicker guidance that does not meet that uh, criteria. Um, now, one of the fundamental differences that Dr. Sultan and I will discuss is that, by definition, uh, these are not recommendations that are being generated by these reviews, but these are basically expert opinion documents. And so we make should or may consider statements rather than recommend or suggest statements, which is a fundamental difference. So in the place of recommendations, we actually use what we call best practice advice statements. And so in these statements, or trying to provide practical suggestions on how gastroenterologists may elect to proceed in care of these conditions. Uh, I'll stop there just because I, I know that there's a lot that we can talk about here, but I think that uh, hopefully helps to frame you know, some of the, the fundamental differences between these documents. So first off, those are wonderful kind of background information for us to have for this conversation. And I've already learned a ton from the two of you just, just from those last few minutes, so I appreciate that. So from a very kind of almost granular level, who decides what topic should go to a guideline and go to a CPU? Now, certain new topics, that makes sense to me why they would go to a CPU right away. But maybe like a, what about those in-between topics that may have a little bit bigger body of data? How do you decide on the topics for a guideline versus a CPU maybe? That's a good question. So I think we really look for suggestions from our membership. So we have a, an open comment period where we actually solicit suggestions for topics where we think that clinicians need guidance. And we formally review some of those topics to see what has been published in those areas. So if there are existing guidelines, we'll sometimes take that into consideration. And then we do what's called a vetting of the topic, and we'll look to see what kind of available evidence there is. And within our purview, we do anywhere from four to eight guidelines or updates. And so we try to find topics that we think um, there's been a lot of practice in uh, variability in practice, or there's lots of new emerging evidence, new treatments, new drugs that we think should be included in the uh, armamentarium of therapies that we can use for specific diseases. And so we really try to take all those factors into consideration when deciding on whether to proceed with the topic. We also, after vetting our topics, we also get approval from our governing board. And sometimes those topics evolve, or sometimes we broaden our topics or narrow down our topics to see what we think we ought to focus on in our guideline. Many times I will say that what comes out as a CPU will eventually become a guideline. Joe pointed out the fact that our guidelines take time. Because we're really relying on a rigorous process of systematically reviewing the evidence and actually doing pretty much a compilation of individual systematic reviews for every single intervention that we might be considering, it can take time to produce these documents. So 
an area where we think timely advice is needed more urgently, we might proceed with a, Joe might proceed with a CPU, and then we might take that on and say, okay, well, now we know this area is rapidly, has rapidly advanced since the time of the clinical practice update. We think we have evidence that we we ought to systematically look at and do a guideline for. We'll sometimes actually take those on at a later time. So what is the turnaround time for a guideline? Let's say somebody is like, we should do a guideline versus a CPU. Is it, are we talking months, weeks, years? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think there's a tension between us trying to do these guidelines in a timely fashion so that we're providing the most up-to-date guidance, but at the same time, trying to make sure that we do the right things in terms of our process and our rigor. So we try to follow the highest methodologic rigor. And our guidelines on average are meant to take about 18 months, but some will take up to three years, which has been our longest guideline so far. That was actually our probiotics guideline, which took three years (laughs) to complete. But, you know, we actually looked at strain level data for effectiveness for a lot of different conditions. And it was a lot of work and, and this field is rapidly evolving. And so on the other end of the spectrum, we have guidelines that have taken us about closer to a year which I would say is kind of the shortest time frame. Now, this is separate from a category of guidance called rapid reviews and rapid recommendations or rapid guidelines. The first rapid guideline was actually developed by the World Health Organization back when H1N1 influenza had occurred, and that was about 10 years ago. And since then, it's been a rapidly evolving field. And the AGA actually published a series of three rapid reviews and recommendations and including one clinical practice update. And this was a joint effort between our my committee and Joe's committee. And we really worked collaboratively to develop these rapid recommendations. And I think one of our guidelines we actually completed in, I would say, nine days, which is the fastest <laughs> that I've ever done a guideline. <laughs> which one was that? I was laughing out loud when CS said weeks. I thought that was hilarious. And that nine days. Nine days. I didn't even offer days. <laughs> yes, I recall those days very well, Shazi. I think we met, I think, on a Sunday evening with the group. And literally to the first draft, it was about nine days and 12 days to a formal submission to, to gastroenterology. But that was specifically in the context of COVID, where there is a, a really urgent need for guidance, a specific endoscopy. Uh, I think it's be very difficult to replicate that timeline in the future. Yeah, I'm kind of hoping we'd have to re- replicate nothing about COVID in the future as well, just in, ge- in general. <laughs> so Joe, let me turn to you for a second. So how long does a CPU take to turn around? By design, uh, we aim to have a, a draft for a review in four to six months and have that submitted by the sixth month so that we can publish in approximately nine to 12 months. And so there's wide variants. Uh, we've had um, CPUs that have been developed and published within six months, but it's far uh, more likely in the norm uh, where it's published in the nine to 12 month period. But the, the whole idea is that we have much more narrow topics that are not subject to a really exhaustive technical review requiring great methodology. And so that allows us to be a little bit more nimble in addressing topics um, in a shorter time frame. You were mentioning that it really is kind of an expert recommendation. So how do you choose the expert in the field? Is it something that's very obvious or is it something that you actually have to kind of parse through the data, kind of ask colleagues who they would think of as a thought leader? How do you approach that? That's a great question. I think that uh, this is something that we take a lot of thought into because 
Uh, the reality is that, especially for these expert reviews, the content can be significantly influenced by the individuals you ask to write these reviews because these have the stamp of approval that requires governing board approval um, and the credibility of the organization. It's really important that we try to find a balance of opinion, particularly in areas where there's controversy and a, a difference of approach. And so we actually do ask around quite a bit to, uh, in terms of who are some of the individuals that might provide that balance. We do tend to skew towards individuals who are very senior in the field, but we actually are very intentional in trying to ensure adequate diversity of background and of opinion. And we, by rule, do not allow for individuals who are at the same institution, as an example. And one of the things that, although we are really trying very diff- hard to involve more junior individuals in the development of these documents, what we have found is that um, because the credibility is required for expert opinion-based reviews, that we tend to use uh, mid-level career and senior investigators within these areas. But that being said, you know, I, I think that for some topics, it's a little bit you know, easier than others. But I found that in some areas, including a lot of the bowel disorders, IBS, IBD, I've learned very quickly that uh, there's widely disparate opinions and approach. And so that's why we uh, usually try to at least have those two different areas uh, represented. Yeah, so when CS and I talked to Todd Barron about the pancreatic necrosis CPU, we both found it, and CS obviously weigh in on this, but I think we both found it almost reassuring or helpful that a surgeon was also on the paper because we're talking about endoscopic approaches to something that used to be a surgical approach. And it is, you know, as you were mentioning, it is a big statement to have those kind of paradigm shifts. So it was it was nice and, and there was some kind of heft to it that surgeons were also kind of weighing in on this multidisciplinary area. Absolutely. That's really important um, as we think about the multidisciplinary nature of gastroenterology. And so for, in some of our CPUs, we involve dietitians who are involved in uh, the care of patients with um, either IBS or IBD. We have involved palliative care physicians for one of our topics related to palliative care in patients with NCs liver disease as examples. So we are not limiting ourselves to just uh, gastroenterologists per se, uh, particular areas that involve other specialties. Now, maybe speaking on the corollary of this, how do you envision or how does AGA envision the CPU and practice guidelines to be applied? Is this something that other medical societies, the surgical societies and nutrition should look and see, oh, this is what GI says, this is the voice of GI? How about clinicians? Is this something that that's the bar that's set, everyone should apply legally? Does it have any standing? Oh, that's a standard of care. So how should we practice this? Or is this more like this is something to aim towards it's good to have but you know use it or not use it so how do you how does the aja envision its use as guidelines or cpu you know the target audience is really broad for our documents i think depending on the focus of the guideline i think it can be really inclusive of not just gastroenterologists but also primary care clinicians including surgeons including obgyn or family medicine practitioners so for example we recently completed a guideline on iron deficiency anemia and this was really targeting not just gastroenterologists but including internal medicine docs hospitalists family medicine practitioners obgyn and hematologists. And we we stopped short of, of treatment for uh, iron deficiency anemia, but we were really focusing on the role of endoscopy and uh, the diagnostic workup of iron deficiency anemia. And those types of patients are encountered more by the general practitioners before they actually get referred to us in GI. So depending on the 
scope of our guideline, we really try to target a broad group of uh, individuals and not just clinicians, but also patients. Accompanying a lot of our documents are actually patient handouts and patient materials where we, in lay language, try to outline what are the key messages from our, our documents. I think more and more, we should be focusing on working more collaboratively um, across societies. I think that is an important movement in the future so that there isn't duplication of effort across not only, you know, we GI is really um, very much now a collaborative specialty where we work really closely with our surgical colleagues, our radiologic colleagues. Um, so more and more, I think there is a room for us to advance the field forward by, by working on, on more multi-collaborative type projects. So Joe, just turning to you for, from a CPU standpoint, how do you expect the average practitioner to take this document? What do you expect them to do? How, how should they apply it to their clinical practice? Well, I think that um, it's really important to note that guidelines are really intended to derive quality metrics. And these are really hard and fast rules of how gastroenterologists really should be practicing. But in contrast, I think that the clinical practice updates are providing practical guidance for gastroenterologists to say, all right, you have these common situations that you face, and these are some suggestions as to things that are considered best practice. Um, and so those are the key distinctions that we would make uh, between recommendations of the guideline and best practice advice uh, from our CPUs. So it's my hope is that um, these will be really practical, useful advice uh, for clinicians in their daily clinical practice. And although we do view these as formal statements by the society, these are all in, in the context of clinical judgment, right? And the, the whole idea is that there are a lot of areas where they don't neatly fit into the boxes of specific uh, guidance statements. And so these are really trying to say, all right, in these situations, that uh, these are just practical things that you might want to think about doing in these challenging uh, situations. Okay, that makes sense to me. And then... Shanaz, why don't we go back to you? Shanaz, do you mind t walking us through how you expect a guideline to be applied for a the average practitioner and who the target audience is? Yeah, so you know, with, with our guidelines, we use this grade framework that really outlines very nicely how to actually understand a recommendation. So one of the important tenets of the grade framework is that for there to be transparency about the process and for there to be an emphasis on clear, actionable recommendations. So we use words um, that Joe alluded to earlier, such as we recommend or we suggest, and we recommend for or we recommend against a specific action or intervention, and we suggest for or suggest against. And these are words that are meant to denote specific actions. So recommend means this is a strong recommendation for or against something. And it really means that you should you should do this. For the majority of people, this is the right thing to do. When we use words like we suggest for or suggest against, it implies that this is a conditional recommendation. That for the majority of individuals, this may be the right thing, but for a certain percentage of people, it may not be. And you really need to use your judgment. You need to rely on understanding patients' values and preferences in the decision-making process. And this is not something that you should automatically consider. The downstream uh, consequence of having this kind of really clear language is that it allows practitioners and clinicians to really know exactly what is meant. In the past, one of the issues with a lot of guideline and recommendations was that it was, they were very ambiguous. 
you should perhaps consider potentially doing. And then the clinician sits there going, well, what does that really mean? I'm considering it. I'm thinking about it. I'm, um, and so it's really meant to have kind of tra- um, consistent language. So any guideline that uses the GRADE framework, this is really the language that ought to be used. So there is there is really no ambiguity about what is meant by a specific recommendation with respect to what action should be taken. So the resource you're speaking of, Dr. Sultan, where can people access how to learn how to do grade methodology? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there's a series of articles that have been published that explain the grade process in a lot of detail. There's a four-part BMJ series, and then there's a series of articles. I can't keep track of the number, I think 14, 15, in the Journal of Clinical Epidemiology. But there are actually a number of centers that are focused on teaching grade. And within the U.S., there's an organization called the U.S. Grade Network that I'm a part of. And we actually provide training for grade twice a year in the spring and the fall. And it's open to anyone interested in guideline development. So we have individuals from all over different organizations, people that are involved with the organizational process for their society, as as well as panel members, committee members, and anyone interested in learning about systematic reviews and, and grade. And in the U.S., this is the main source of training, but there are other workshops internationally at a number of grade centers that put out these workshops. No, that's fantastic, because I'm not sure that I would have ever known that those resources existed. So I'm, I'm happy you're sharing them with the audience today, because you know I think there are people that are interested in this, and there are people that just don't know how to take that first step, and that seems like a very easy way to access it and to start to engage with the material. We emphasize the importance of really knowing why you're coming to the workshop. So a lot of people just want to attend the workshop because they want to be familiar with the grade. So uh, we have a lot of program coordinators for different societies that attend and people that are just wanting to learn more about the basics. And for individuals that really want to become grade methodologists, we actually have attendees that will come once, twice, sometimes three times to these meetings because they really want to get a deeper understanding of some of the, the, the methods. And we recommend attending the workshop more than once because the first time you're just understanding the concepts. And then the second or third time, perhaps you're actually involved with the guideline and now you're applying some of that knowledge that you've learned. And that hands-on application is really, really helpful. Are these workshops once a year or multiple times a year? Yep. So these workshops are held twice a year and they're over the course of three or four days. And we have a number of large group sessions where you focus on broad kind of topics. And then we have smaller working group sessions where you actually apply hands-on information about evidence synthesis. You're looking at an existing evidence review and trying to apply some of the concepts of how you rate the quality of the evidence. And then you actually, at the end of the, the workshop, will formulate recommendations. So we go through the full process of, of simulating what would happen if you're actually involved in a guideline committee. As an educator, I fully appreciate that you've incorporated simulation into the grade methodology. You're just combining all your world, worlds right now. Yeah, so there's actually a paper that we published in Journal of General Internal Medicine where we talk about using a competency-based framework for training and guideline development, just like you would apply different milestones and competencies to learning endoscopy, the same concepts apply to learning how to become a great methodologist. We could seriously do a podcast just on that, I think. (laughs) Awesome. 
Within our guidelines, we use this great framework that really outlines very nicely how to actually understand a recommendation. So one of the important tenets of the great framework is that for there to be transparency about the process and for there to be an emphasis on clear, actionable recommendations. So we use words that Joe alluded to earlier, such as we recommend or we suggest, and we recommend for or we recommend against a specific action or intervention, and we suggest for or suggest against. And these are words that are meant to denote specific actions. So recommend means this is a strong recommendation for or against something, and it really means that you should you should do this. For the majority of people, this is the right thing to do. When we use words like we suggest for or suggest against, it implies that this is a conditional recommendation, that for the majority of individuals, this may be the right thing, but for a certain percentage of people, it may not be. And you really need to use your judgment. You need to rely on understanding patients' values and preferences in the decision-making process. And this is not something that um, you should automatically consider. The downstream consequence of having this kind of really clear language is that it allows practitioners and clinicians to really know exactly what is meant. In the past, one of the issues with a lot of guideline and recommendations was that it was, they were very ambiguous. You should perhaps consider potentially doing. And then the clinicians is there going, well, what does that really mean? I'm considering it. I'm thinking about it. And so it's really meant to have kind of consistent language. So any guideline that uses the GRADE framework, this is really the language that ought to be used. So there is there is really no ambiguity about what is meant by a specific recommendation with respect to what action should be taken. Can I ask a follow-up question that on guidelines? So it correct me if I'm wrong, it also will say this is our recommendation based on high quality evidence or low quality evidence. Well, how do practitioners approach a statement that says we suggest this or we recommend this based on low quality evidence or limited evidence perhaps? How does the provider approach those statements? That's a really good question. So when there's high quality or high certainty evidence, we're pretty confident in the effect estimates that we're seeing for a specific intervention. So we're pretty confident this is the likely outcome that you would see using a specific treatment. And it's based on usually a body of evidence that we think it has very limited flaws or, or limitations per se. When we have the other end of the spectrum and we have very low certainty of evidence or lo very low quality of evidence, it means that there are lots of limitations to the evidence. And it's not very clear whether the effect estimate that we're seeing or the effect that is being observed across these studies is really the true effect estimate. And that likely future research may actually give us a better estimate of what truth really is. So it gives the practitioners some sense of how confident we are that the effects that we're seeing are really the true effects that we should see with specific interventions. High quality evidence will usually lead to strong recommendations, whereas very low or low quality evidence will often lead to conditional recommendations because there is this uncertainty. Okay, thanks. That's always been one of those things that I think trainees ask us a lot. And I'm not sure I had a perfect answer. So I'm going to, of course, giving you full credit, use that if that's okay with you. Absolutely. And I think it's also important to know that this is an area where you need better evidence. So when you have very low, low quality evidence, it highlights the need for better evidence. That's when you tell the trainee this would be an exciting project to develop a deeper bench of evidence for this recommendation. Correct. Great idea for a research project. 
That's a classic program director line right there. So Shazi, let us ask you this question too. Are there any guidelines in the pipeline that you're particularly excited about that we can give the audience a sneak peek? Yes. So there's a guideline that we are just in the process of finalizing after it has gone out for public comments, which is focused on intragastric balloons for weight loss. I think we and the AGA recognizing that the obesity epidemic is really of importance more broadly, not just to endocrinologists or to internal medicine doctors, but also to us in GI. We really wanted to do something in this area. We really wanted to provide some guidance for gastroenterologists, especially in light of the fact that we have endoscopic opportunities or treatments that we can offer patients for weight loss. And this field is rapidly evolving. So we anticipate that there's going to be specific patient populations and I'm looking to Joe because, you know, we see a huge epidemic in NAFOLD and, and NASH. And I think there's going to be a lot of evolving evidence that is going to highlight the importance of us in GI understanding how to manage obesity, how to reduce the complications from obesity. So intragastric balloons for weight loss. And then that will segue to another guideline on pharmacologic therapies for weight loss. And then we have a guideline coming out on Crohn's disease, moderate to severe Crohn's disease, because the IBD world is rapidly changing. Lots of newer therapies, lots of head-to-head studies coming out, comparing one treatment with another. So that guideline will come out early spring. And then stay tuned. We we have a lot of guidelines in the works, six more guidelines that we're going to be developing over the course of the next year and the following year. That's a nice tease right there. Now, I want to ask the opposite question of both of you. So since you both said that there are, are topics solicited, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to go on record to say a topic that was suggested that didn't quite pan out for either being a suboptimal reason or perhaps for other conflicts that might exist. What do you guys reject or what are the most fun topics that you've been able to reject as a potential guideline or a CPU? That's a tough one. I know for a while we did a guideline on functional diarrhea and I know that one had been proposed three years in a row, and we were avoiding it (laughs) until finally we said, okay, this clearly is an area where clinicians want guidance. And so we, we, we took that on. A topic that comes up consistently is sclerosing mesenteritis. That seems to be an enigma for a lot of clinicians. But, you know, we have avoided topics that are so rare or so or such niche topics. We really want to focus on conditions that are more prevalent or where we talk or conditions where I think the majority of us gastroenterologists will encounter patients with those conditions and where we think we can really make an impact in providing guidance. I think that's uh, similar to Shazi. I think that's what we actually have largely uh, rational ideas, uh, nothing that I would feel comfortable discussing on air, but I think there are some that uh, relate to uh, very niche areas uh, that are not areas that gaps and are facing on an everyday basis. But the more common scenario that we alluded to earlier are that there are a lot of proprietary interests for specific technologies or devices. And we have a really hard line where we are very intentionally trying to avoid topics where there is an obvious commercial interest. And so there's a a credibility of the organization that we are very mindful of. But that being said, we are very hopeful that we can begin to address some of these topics in collaboration with the AGA Center for GI Innovation Technology. And so our CPUC, our Clinical Practice Update Committee, and CJIT are actually working together to identify topics where there's mutual interest, where there are areas or number of new devices that are coming in around a similar time period, and to actually review that evidence and to provide some guidance to clinicians on how they can incorporate those into their clinical practice. 
Fantastic. I would also like to commend both of you on those wonderful, not just informative, but politically savvy answers as well. That was pretty impressive. So as we kind of wind down this conversation, how do young trainees or young faculty start getting involved in this world? What did you do when you guys were starting your career to end up as chairs of these committees and intimately involved in guidelines and CPUs? Besides for the political savviness of those answers, what other skills do they need? What else do they should be doing? I can start first, Joe. I I think this is a really fascinating area. I think evidence synthesis work, guideline development, I think is is, is really a great area that if a young trainee really has interest in, I think they can develop the skill set. We are intentionally wanting to build capacity within the AGA and have more trained methodologists that can help develop guidelines. And we we actually have a kind of a informal system where individuals that are interested can get training in systematic reviews and then get involved in guidelines as junior methodologists and then transition to become senior methodologists. I think anyone that has a background in epidemiology or outcomes research, I think, is has already kind of the basic foundations to build their critical appraisal skills and I think that actively getting involved in evidence synthesis work, so doing systematic reviews, I think is really, really helpful. And as part of doing systematic reviews, learning about grade, and then we offer through an organization that I'm involved with as a grade methodologist, uh, the USGN, US Grade Network, we offer training and workshops. And this really came, we're kind of a subgroup of a larger grade working group that actually was the the brainchild of a, of a number of thought leaders up at McMaster and at Oxford. And so our goal really is to teach great and to teach people how to become versed in the methodology of, of guideline development. And I would encourage a lot of our young trainees, a lot of our fellows to really take an interest and, and get some basic training and, and to be involved. I think the AGA is, is the perfect society where you can have those opportunities. Yeah, just to add to that, because I know that Shazi won't uh, toot her own horn on this, but really it is incredible that the way in which she and Ingvi Falkieter and the Guidelines Committee have really been committed to training young fellows and junior faculty in great methodology and providing them incredible opportunity to meaningfully contribute to guideline development uh, for our society at a very early point in their career. This is very unique among societies. I'm not aware of any other of our societies that has made that type of commitment and allows them to uh, really not only go through the methodology training, but to serve as methodologists for these high-impact technical reviews and or the guidelines themselves. And I think I'm aware of many examples of individuals who have been trained through this process who now are the budding stars in our specialty in various areas, including IBD. And so I think that it's really a unique opportunity and wanted to reiterate that for those who have that type of training, there are free organizations that will give you that shot. Now, specific to CPUC, I think that the my main suggestion is to, number one, suggest ideas, but to try to join the committee. And so for those who are out there and thinking about how they may wish to get involved with the AGA, we'd be very interested in getting young gastroenterologists who've got great ideas and want to contribute to the work that we do that we are always looking for uh, talented, diverse young individuals. Now, that's quite different than the writing groups that we are developing for our CPUs, which are typically comprised of either two or three experts in the field. And by definition, because of the expertise required, are typically either mid-career or senior-level investigators. But each of the writing groups consist of one of our committee members, who are obviously comprised of 
a wide range of individuals with diverse expertise. And so that would be my main suggestion. Never sell yourself short. This is an organization that is really committed to engagement of fellows and young faculty. And uh, it's by definition, we are always trying to involve uh, multiple young uh, trainees on our committee. That's great. And I think that's super encouraging to hear. So let's say someone hears a podcast and be like, wow, I can actually get involved in writing guidelines and not just reading it on the you know other end of the downstream end or CPU. What would you say are some to-do things or keep an eye out things for them to, this is where I want to get involved. This is what I should do, who I should contact besides getting on a committee. I think committee, you know, they usually once a year have recruitment, but between now and then, any other things to do for them? My only other suggestion is that it's really important to always be working with the individuals at your institution, always looking for opportunities to really grow in terms of your skill sets, building your networks. I've been very fortunate throughout my career of having individuals that were willing to take a shot and sponsoring someone who had not yet reached a certain level of seniority. I remember very distinctly when I was uh, in my first few years as a faculty member, I thought that was going to be very difficult to get on a committee with any of the societies. I was a a nobody at that point, I'm just, uh, just starting out. And I think the idea is that um, unless you take that chance and put yourself out there and uh, work with uh, um, building skill sets, building networks, trying to develop expertise that's very narrow, such as great methodology or outcomes research, which is always something that brings value to very specific committees, you have an opportunity very early on to get engaged. And uh, I know with certainty that AGA is very interested in trying to engage young faculty in all of its committees, and certainly for you know, guidelines and for CPUC, that is definitely the case. But unless you put yourself out there and uh, ask for those opportunities to apply for these positions, you won't give yourself that up, uh, give that shot. And I would echo what Joe said. I really do think it's finding those opportunities, working with the right people. I think mentorship is really important. I think you need a good team of mentors. And I think finding the right people to work with and working hard are, are just basically the two main things that I think will help you to be successful. And I think that ultimately, you know, your success will pay off. So the goal of this podcast, or one of the goals is really to mentor, coach, advise, and just inform a lot of young faculty, young trainees, young GI folk. So what pieces of advice just in your careers would you leave for young trainees? What would you, what would you tell them was the best advice you got along the way? I think I would say that you should really pursue things that interest you and that bring you joy. So I wear different hats. I consider myself a health services researcher with an interest in colon cancer, but yet I also do guideline and methodology work. And then I also have a very much an interest in education and, and teaching our, our younger generation of trainees. And they sound like they're disparate things, but really in reality, there are opportunities that I think all really fit together very, very well. And I think not being afraid to try different things that you enjoy is really important. So I think if an opportunity comes your way that you think may not really be aligned with uh, uh, your three-year plan, your five-year plan for where you want to go with your career, be open-minded to it. I would never have thought that my interest in evidence-based medicine would have evolved into my involvement with grade and then becoming a guideline methodologist that then led me to where I am today. And that was totally, totally different from my five-year plan that I put together meeting with my mentor when I finished my training saying... I'm going to do colon cancer related research and I'm going to be at the VA and I'm going to get funding and have an R01. And my path has been circuitous, but all to say that there are lots of opportunities and lots of ways to be successful. 
Yeah, I, I entirely agree with that. Uh, those principles. Uh, the reality is that our careers will hopefully, if, if we're fortunate, be uh, several decades long, and obviously that's a long time for us to grow as we mature as individual persons, right? And ideas that we should be open-minded to evolve and pivot over time in terms of the areas that we're really passionate about. And so, although it sounds uh, very cliche, I think this principle of you know, following your passion of what's important to you personally and professionally, I think is really important because I think that the, the moment that we begin to lose the joy of what we do every day, then it, it becomes work. And I think that it's important for us to really take time on a regular basis to reflect on what's important to us and to ensure that what we're doing and what we're planning, both in the short term and long term, are really aligned with what those goals and aspirations are. And I think that obviously that's something that's the perspective of time, early career, mid-career, and, and late career will naturally evolve. And I think that even in terms of content area of research, education, administration, those are things that each of us have a sense of areas that we have some skill sets in. But the whole idea I want to point out here is that, again, we should not ever sell yourself short and be open-minded that there may be areas that if given the right opportunity and with training and a mentorship, that there are areas that you may not realize that you could be very effective in. And so I think keeping an open mind and following your passion and really taking time to reflect on a regular basis are just simple things that I think would be useful for trainees and for faculty alike. Great. Thank you so much both for joining us on this podcast. And then lastly, to close, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, get in contact to learn more, what's the best way to do so? Do you have a Twitter account, email? I do. So my Twitter handle is at Sultan Shazi. And my email is through the University of Minnesota. My first initial, my last name at umn.edu. I am unfortunately old school and have not yet taken the leap to Twitter. But I've been told that I absolutely have to. And I some at some point, I probably will. But for now, joseph.lim at yale.edu is the easiest way to reach me. I'd be happy to hear from anyone. That's awesome. Guys, thanks so much for being with us here today. I know everyone that's listening has learned a lot from both of you, and it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, CS. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AGA Podcast. To reach us, please email us at agapodcast at gastro.org or follow us on Twitter at MJWitsonMD, at NinaNandyMD, and at CSCMD, podcast production done by Resonant Recordings. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening, and have a good one.